You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day, there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Before we begin, I'd like to give a warm welcome and a huge thanks to my newest patrons, Aaron and Heather. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Really, the only contact I've had with my audience has been with patrons through Patreon, and I love getting feedback. I realized recently, though, that this was probably because I wasn't making it easy for people to contact me. So I changed my settings on Twitter, where my handle is at historicalblind, to receive messages from anyone. On the Facebook page, I changed the button to a direct message service via Messenger. And on the website at www.historicalblindness.com, I set up a contact page, which will send messages to my new email address for the show, historicalblindness at gmail.com. Shoot me a message if you like the show or have some feedback, such as ideas for episodes. And the same goes for advertisers interested in sponsoring the program. Get in touch. Any listeners who are interested in supporting the program, the website has a support page where you can give a one-time donation of any amount. I just fixed this to actually accept payments, so you can really do it now. Or click through to the Patreon page at www.patreon.com historicalblindness and pledge a monthly donation in exchange for teasers, early access to episodes, and electronic or paper copies of my historical novel. Listeners can also support the program by giving positive ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and helping us get more people listening. Help out the show and enjoy a sense of satisfaction knowing you're helping me to slowly but surely turn this hobby into something more. On to the show. Welcome to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my ongoing effort to tie in episode topics with major holidays, and since my Turin Shroud episode came out about a month before Easter, I've got another Easter treat for you that I found hidden among the plastic grasses at the bottom of my basket. And this one turns out to be a perfect distillation of this show's focus on historical mysteries, hoaxes, and pseudo-history. It's a story that in some regards might seem familiar to listeners because elements of it were appropriated and incorporated by Dan Brown into his runaway success novel, The Da Vinci Code. But Brown was not himself the originator of the ideas or the researcher to first bring them to light. Indeed, Brown was sued for plagiarism because of the bold-faced usurpation of his plot from a previous bestseller, 
a book presenting itself as a work of historiography, itself built upon previous research. This book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, advanced some astonishing conclusions. Namely, that Christ was of literal royal blood, that contrary to traditional Eastern narratives, he may have survived his crucifixion, and that there exists a secret society whose sole purpose is to preserve the bloodline of Jesus Christ, established through his union with Mary Magdalene, and bring about the restoration of his royal dynasty. This book and its ideas will serve as the focus of this episode 19, The Priory of Zion and the Quest for the Holy Grail, or Lincoln's Links and Plantard's Plans. As I commence, allow me to offer a mea culpa of sorts. There are some stories that get the better of me, sprawling tales for which I am no match, especially in the short time I have to research and produce this show. Topics like the Turin Shroud that encompass great swaths of history and could easily be expanded into an entire podcast series exploring all its minutiae and dead ends prove especially difficult to parse. But parse I must, which requires that I settle on a starting point and along the way gloss over some certainly fascinating facets of the story. But as it must be done, I'll choose, in this case, the very recent starting point of 1969, where we'll find as our character of central interest Henry Lincoln, an actor and writer for British television who had recently penned some scripts for Doctor Who. While on holiday in rural France, he happened to read a fascinating little memoir in French, half travel guide and half buried treasure mystery, called in translation, The Gold of Rennes, or The Cursed Treasure of Rennes-le-Chateau, by Gérard de Sède. Thus was he initiated into a mystery that had long fascinated many in France, though few knew of it beyond that country's borders. The mystery of Rennes-le-Chateau, a sleepy little hilltop town in the Languedoc region of southern France between the Cévennes and Pyrenees Mountains, revolves around a priest named Baron Gersonnier, who began in 1885 to serve as the priest of the church at Rennes-le-Chateau, which was dedicated to Mary Magdalene. Saunier was poor, as was his church, which was in need of repair. But somehow, within 20 years, he managed to come into great wealth and rebuilt the church as well as his own estate in a lavish manner. The mystery, then, was and still remains the source of Baron Gersonnier's fortune, which has never been satisfactorily explained, and thus has spawned many a legend. According to Gérard de Sède's book, Saunier discovered four parchments in a hollow pillar while restoring his church. Two of these were genealogies, and the other two were ciphers. Saunier took the parchments to Paris, where he had them deciphered, and then promptly bought some reproductions of certain paintings from the Louvre, paintings that were somehow important to the secret he possessed. Among them, The Shepherds of Arcadia by Nicolas Poussin, as well as a painting by David Tenier, the Younger, 
featuring St. Anthony. These elements of the mystery would be much dwelt upon by Henry Lincoln, but what he found truly tantalizing about Gerard de Sede's book was that the author claimed to have somehow come into possession of Saunier's parchment ciphers and even reproduced them. And Lincoln managed quite easily to crack the simplest of them, which after its decipherment reads, To King Dagobert II and to Sion belongs this treasure, and he is dead there. This corresponded well with the coy intimations de Sede makes throughout his book, involving the Merovingian kings of ancient France, a rather mysterious dynasty claiming descent from ancient Troy, priest kings with long hair said to be divinely chosen to rule the Franks, establishing a holy empire in partnership with the Roman Catholic Church, the Merovingian king Clovis, on the church's behalf, suppressed the heretical Visigoths, who had previously sacked Rome and perhaps carried off the treasure of the Temple of Jerusalem, driving them back to their strongholds in the Razes, the region where today stands Rennes-le-Chateau. According to the narrative de Sede pushed somewhat coquettishly, when the Merovingian king Dagobert II was assassinated, his son, Sigebert IV, survived, smuggled to the Languedoc, where he would assume a false identity as the Count of Rede, called Plantard, a part of the story supposedly supported by a relief sculpture at Rennes-le-Chateau of a soldier carrying a child on horseback. Thus, the decoded cipher, a treasure, the Visigoth booty from Rome, belonging to King Dagobert II, and the further suggestion of dynastic intrigue and the survival of the Merovingian line, along with the unanswered questions, what was the significance of this scion to whom the treasure also belonged, and what could it mean that, quote, he is dead there, end quote, when Dagobert II was known to be buried elsewhere. These were all enough, enough to draw Henry Lincoln headlong into the rabbit hole. Lincoln managed to convince the BBC to produce a series of documentaries on the mystery for the television program Chronicle. As he began to write the first of these programs, The Lost Treasure of Jerusalem, 1972, he contacted Gerard de Sede, hoping to examine his research materials, including photographs of the parchments to which he had claimed to have access. De Sede obliged, and Lincoln began to suspect the author of harboring some secret knowledge about which he was less than forthcoming. When Lincoln asked why he had not published the solution to the simple cipher in his book, De Sede answered, quote, We thought it might interest someone like you to find it for yourself, end quote. Just who the other half of this we was remained a mystery, although Lincoln had his first clue when he noticed the name Plantard stamped on the back of certain items among de Sede's materials. Subsequently, as Lincoln and his team sought further documentation from de Sede, and presumably from his secret collaborators, they were directed to the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, where cataloged in a specific place, they found a treasure trove of historical documents pertinent to the mystery, collected under the melodramatic title, The Secret Dossier. In the dossier was one work called The Merovingian Treasure at Rennes-le-Chateau by one Antoine the Hermit, detailing much of the legend of Berenger Saunier, as Gérard de Sede had it, 
Then there was Engraved Stones of the Languedoc by Joseph Cortali, which included drawings of tombstones from the Rennes-le-Chateau churchyard, a work that would prove necessary to decode the larger of the two parchments said to have been found in the pillar by Saunière. And finally, there were the works of Henri Lobineau, one a Merovingian genealogy that traced the royal line all the way to an extant family by the familiar name of Plantard, and specifically to one Pierre Plantard. The other was Lobineau's secret files, newspaper cuttings hinting at people being murdered over the secret at Rennes-le-Chateau, further genealogies and coats of arms, and official-looking documents. On the first page of this work appeared a dedication, quote, to Monseigneur the Count of Rade, Duke of Razès, the legitimate descendant of Clovis I, King of France, most serene child of the King and Saint Dagobert II, end quote. One drawing of a tombstone in engraved stones of the Languedoc in particular caught Lincoln's eye as being unusual in that it seemed composed of both Latin and Greek letters, which upon closer examination appeared to say et in Arcadia ego, or even in Arcadia I am there, a phrase or theme treated by numerous artists having to do with the idea that even in a paradise death is present, a natural enough inscription for a tombstone. But Lincoln saw a link to Nicholas Poussin whose painting, Et in Arcadia Ego, sometimes called The Shepherds of Arcadia, was already part of the Berenger Saunier legend, being one of the paintings he bought reproductions of after having the parchments decoded. And further adding to the mystique of the drawing was the fact that the tombstone the drawing depicted had supposedly been chiseled away by Saunier, as though he were trying to destroy an important clue. Luckily for Lincoln and his partners, the inscription had been rendered along with the inscription of a headstone that was now entirely missing and preserved for them in the secret dossier. The importance of these tombstones was confirmed when, during the filming of his first documentary, Gérard Desaid contacted him and gave him the solution to the more complex cipher of the two parchments said to have been discovered by Saunière in the pillar. It turned out that the text of the headstone had been the key. The parchment code itself, embedded in the Latin text of a passage from the Gospel of John, was far more complicated than the first code, which even Lincoln described as being as simple as something a schoolboy could have created. This greater parchment code's decipherment was therefore surpassingly, almost comically complicated. I'll spare you the tedious details of this convoluted process. Decoded, it read, Shepherdess, no temptation, Poussin, Tenier, hold the key, peace, 681, by the cross and this horse of God, I destroy this demon guardian at midday, blue apples. One can only imagine the exhilaration felt by Lincoln, with all signs pointing to him being on the trail of a genuine solution to the mystery. Most of the decoded message seemed meaningless, and even today its meaning remains much debated. But further mention of Poussin and Tenier, the two painters whose works it was said Saunier bought reproductions of after solving the cipher himself, 
sent Lincoln on a quest to find the hidden meaning in their works. He determined that the phrase, shepherdess, no temptation, referred to Teniers' one painting of St. Anthony that was not focused on his temptation, St. Anthony and St. Paul in the Desert, in which can be seen a shepherdess in the background. Frustrated at the lack of significant-seeming clues in this painting, though, he instead focused on Poussin's The Shepherds of Arcadia, which did feature a shepherdess, but more importantly featured the phrase et in Arcadia ego that had been on the tombstone that served as the key to the parchment code. The painting features a group of shepherds pointing at a tomb where the phrase is inscribed, and according to most art historians, beyond the significance of the phrase as symbolic of death's ubiquity, the work depicts the legendary invention of painting, as one of the shepherds can either be seen as tracing the words or tracing his own shadow with his finger, the act that led to the conception of painting. Lincoln, however, believed there was far more to the painting, and yet again he was led to believe by Gerard de Sede, who sent him a photograph of and directions to an actual stone landmark in the Languedoc that resembled the tomb in the painting. After tracking down this landmark, Lincoln came to believe that the landscape featured in the painting behind the tomb was in reality a depiction of the view behind the stone box in the neighborhood of Rennes-le-Chateau, despite historians' assertions that Poussin had never visited the region. Was the resemblance convincing, or was Lincoln seeing what he wanted to see? Well, Lincoln certainly seems to suffer from confirmation bias. In a textbook example of apophenia, the perception of connections between unrelated things and meaning in the meaningless, another perfect example of which we just explored in our look at the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, he began to assert there were unusual and symbolically significant geometrical patterns in the painting. While it is true that Poussin's work is often governed by the artistic and geometrical principle of the golden ratio, as are the works of many painters of his period, Lincoln believed that geometrical patterns matching others that he perceived in the coded parchments were present, eventually leading him to believe that when extended beyond the borders of the painting, they represented a pentacle or pentagram, and that this perfect geometrical design could be drawn on a map of the Languedoc region, simply by connecting various landmarks. None of this brought him tangibly closer to any solution to the riddles he had begun seeing everywhere, but it did send him in new directions, searching for occult and religious angles on the mystery. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Peter Laws, the host of the hit podcast Frightful, which offers very scary true stories. But as I research that show, I keep finding other true tales that aren't so terrifying and yet are fascinating and often deeply moving. That's why I launched a second podcast called Our Curious Past, telling forgotten incidents from history told in immersive audio with music, sound effects and on-location recording. 
For example, you can join me on location in an underground nuclear bunker in England as I learned how Britain prepared for the potential of war in the 1980s. I loved recording on location in Transylvania to uncover the history of this beautiful and spooky land beyond the forest, and I was particularly touched by the big response to my episode on the Nazi massacre of urhador suglin an entire French village that was invaded by the Nazis in 1944. To be honest, it was sometimes hard to narrate that without breaking into tears. So why not join me, Peter Laws, by searching our curious past in podcast apps? Because, you know, sometimes it's the unique moments from another person's yesterday that helps us understand ourselves today. Among the secret files of Henri Lobineau in the Bibliothèque Nationale was a table purporting to be the list of the leaders of an organization and the years during which they served. The organization was called the Priory of Sion, or the Order of the True Rose Cross, and it served as the explanation of many cryptic mentions of the word Sion and the initials P and S in the documents Lincoln had been studying. The names of its Grand Masters, or quote-unquote, Helmsmen included a veritable who's who of storied alchemists and famous artists Nicholas Flamel, Leonardo da Vinci, Robert Flood, Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton, Victor Hugo, Claude Debussy, and Jean Cocteau. Lincoln himself admits this dramatis personae is too fanciful to be believed, but instead of doubting it, he insists on keeping an open mind and investigating the Priory's existence further. And indeed, he did find a document from the 12th century showing the existence of an organization with a similar name, the Order of Zion. Then he made something of a precipitous leap in reasoning, heard here in his second documentary on the topic, The Priest, the Painter, and the Devil, 1974. Are we in fact not talking about Jerusalem, but about this mysterious priory? And if so, what is it? Well, one answer would seem to be some sort of secret society or order. And this thought leads to another fascinating possible trail. Many secret orders claim some descent from or connection with the Knights Templar, a religious military order founded by a group of French knights in 1119. How do the Templars figure in the story of Rennes le Chateau? So, this sounded like a secret society, and many secret societies were rumored to have been associated with the Knights Templar, and some of the names on the list were said to have been Templars. Therefore, the Priory of Zion was the secret society that originated the Templars, and the lost treasure of the Templars may actually be the treasure secreted somewhere around Rennes-le-Chateau as 12 Templars were said to have escaped their order's destruction and taken refuge in nearby Chateau de Bezu. Now, the unsupported connections he makes here are typical of Lincoln and his work. He makes an interesting and seemingly feasible speculation, but then without seeking confirmation or evidence, he then takes the premise as a given and uses it as a stepping stone to reach his next conclusion. For example, 
At one point in his documentaries, he makes reference to a memorial cross at Rennes-le-Chateau. In his church garden, Saunier has left us another clue to the Priory's presence. This innocent-seeming memorial cross was erected in 1897. Here, there is a simple and straightforward, pious phrase, Christus winkit, Christ conquers. On each side, there is a similar phrase, Christus imperat, Christ rules, Christus regnat, Christ reigns. But on the back, his language is again cryptic. Christus A-O-M-P-S defendit. Christ defend what? A-O-M can only mean Antiquus Ordo Mysticusque, the ancient and mystic order. And P.S. is, of course, the Priory of Zion. Certainly the Priory's hand is at work here. In point of fact, however, this inscription is actually a relatively common one, meaning Christus ab omni malo plebum suam defendat, or Christ defends his people against every evil. This pretty much sums up the historical rigor of Henry Lincoln's work, so it's no surprise that he ended up tapping into the common conspiracy view of history, in which there is a long tradition of belief that the Templars persisted after their suppression, hiding among other secret societies like the Freemasons. It all makes for a wild and sprawling tale, to be certain, and it expands the lore of Rennes-le-Chateau to epic proportions. But it's not historical research so much as it is unfettered conjecture. By the third documentary in his series, Shadow of the Templars, 1979, after exhausting nearly all the avenues of inquiry he had taken from the secret dossier, and concluding that the Priory of Sion existed even to present day and was dedicated to preserving the Merovingian dynasty and restoring it to power, Lincoln interviewed the mysterious man behind some of Gerard de Sede's sources, Pierre Plantard, who appeared to be a member of the Priory and the true descendant of the Merovingian line. When Saunier found the parchments, he went to Paris. It was to Paris that I too had to go to find the mysterious Priory of Zion. The story seemed to stretch into a distant past through heresy and the Templars and murdered kings. And my researchers had uncovered a priory document of genealogies, tracing a descent from the Merovingians and leading to a man called Pierre Plantard de Saint-Clair, in whose veins it seemed now ran the blood of the long-forgotten Dagobert II. Plantard was coy but revealing in his interview, indicating that the Priory of Sion did exist, and confirming that it existed to protect and promote the Merovingian bloodline as the true rulers of France. Moreover, he hinted playfully that the true treasure of Rennes-le-Chateau may not have been gold, but rather this powerful secret, knowledge of which earned Saunier a fortune in hush money, that pure-blooded Merovingians still survived, prepared to revive their claim to a throne that no longer existed. The notion of the real treasure being a secret jibed well with Lincoln's idea that the surviving Templars had carried the treasure to the Languedoc after their escape, for a few men could not possibly have carried vast stores of gold, but could easily carry a secret. So Lincoln took this notion and ran with it, 
The problem was that he rightly didn't believe the secret Plantard offered was really that explosive. So what if the Merovingians had survived? They were one dynasty among many, none of which would be granted any power in modern-day democratic France, regardless of how dramatically they revealed themselves. Therefore, there had to be some deeper secret to the bloodline of the Merovingians, he reasoned, something warranting their continuous preservation through the centuries by a powerful secret society. What he settled on would serve as the basis of his 1982 bestseller, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. The theory advanced by Henry Lincoln and his co-authors, Michael Bajant and Richard Lee, completely turned the story of the life of Jesus Christ and the Easter story on its head. They hypothesized that the appellation Christ actually indicated that Jesus was a literal king of the house of David, making the sign King of the Jews atop the cross rather more a literal designation than a mockery of him. And they further suggested that Mary Magdalene, his quote-unquote beloved disciple, who tradition tells us was a reformed prostitute, was actually his wife and mother of his children. Their theory goes on to propose that his crucifixion was a sham, and thus his resurrection was just a matter of him revealing himself after his death had been faked. As they reimagined things, Mary Magdalene, either alone or with Jesus, took the offspring of Christ to ancient Gaul before it became France, where she might find refuge with the Jews already in exile there. This accorded well with Mary Magdalene's place in the Grail romances as the figure who brought the Holy Grail to Europe and indeed rewrote the whole idea of what the Holy Grail, the cup that caught the blood of Christ, actually was, suggesting that the original word in the earliest iterations of the tale, San Graal, had been erroneously divided into San Graal, or Holy Grail, when it should have been divided as Sang Raal, or Blood Royal. Thus, Mary Magdalene had smuggled the bloodline of Jesus into ancient France, where his descendants established themselves as the holy, long-haired priest kings of the Merovingian dynasty, a paradigm-shifting secret guarded ever since the Middle Ages by the Priory of Sion and the Templars, and discovered by Baron Gersonnier at Rennes-le-Chateau, where the church had been dedicated to Mary Magdalene. Now, even disregarding the fact that no concrete evidence is offered to support this alternative reading of biblical and European history, there are both logical and historical objections to the wild assertions it relies on. For example, there is no historical consensus on the identity of Mary Magdalene. Lincoln et al. would have you believe that she was the victim of a smear campaign to rewrite her character as a fallen woman when actually she was Jesus' long-suffering wife. Again, an assertion with little support. Meanwhile, other historians, namely Robert Schaefer, have suggested that there never was a Mary Magdalene, citing Roman philosopher Celsus's accusation that Jesus had propagated the myth of his immaculate conception to cover for the fact that his mother, Mary, had been impregnated by a Roman soldier and thus driven away by her carpenter husband as an adulteress to bear her child in shame, he raises the possibility that the name Mary Magdalene was a corruption of Miriam Macadella, 
referring to Mary by her occupation as a dresser of women's hair, making the accusations of Mary Magdalene's harlotry rather more a condemnation of Mother Mary's sexual dalliances. And true historians could go on refuting almost every element of Lincoln's mammoth pseudo-history, pointing out such simple omissions as the fact that no signs of the activities of the Priory of Sion or their Grand Master's involvement in it has ever been turned up, even though many of them were remarkably famous figures, their lives studied and written about extensively. Or the facts that Berenger Saunier likely never found any mysterious parchments, as the recess in the hollow pillar preserved at Rennes le Chateau was not large enough to hold them, and that he could not have bought reproductions of a Poisson or any other paintings from the Louvre, which didn't sell such things at the time. The thing is, historians don't need to do this, because even before Henry Lincoln ever read about the mystery and began his decades-long freefall down its rabbit hole, it had been revealed to be a hoax. As it turns out, Gerard de Sede hadn't written his influential book so much as edited and punched up a manuscript by the supposedly Merovingian pretender Pierre Plantard. And in 1967, during a dispute over the royalties for Desed's book, Plantard revealed that the parchments he'd provided had been forgeries, their ciphers designed by his partner, Philippe de Cherisy. The two of them had become intrigued by the mystery of Berenger Saunier and Rennes-le-Chateau, and had dreamed up a scheme that today might be called an alternate reality game. Indeed, Plantard had forged all of the documents in the so-called secret dossier and planted them in the Bibliothèque Nationale, where there is no official record of the document's registration. Why Desed continued to play along with Plantard's game while feeding the clues to Lincoln, I don't really understand, unless at some point, once Plantard had learned of this new potential promulgator of his lies, he had begun writing directly to Lincoln as Gerard Desed. It would not be a stretch considering his history of composing forgeries under pseudonyms. The dubious character of Pierre Plantard is plain to see. At 17 years old in 1937, Plantard became involved in right-wing politics, attempting to form an anti-Masonic and anti-Semitic organization whose goal was to purify France in response to the rise of a socialist and Jewish prime minister, Leon Blum. His endeavors resulted in the formation of the group Alpha Galates, some of the publications of which indicate his interest in the occult, especially in the ideas of Paul Lecour who promoted a spiritual tradition supposedly originating in Atlantis, which looked forward to a coming age of Aquarius. Some symbols from Lacour's work, notably the octopus, would later appear in some drawings among Plantard's forgeries. Demonstrating his anti-Semitism, in 1940 Plantard wrote to the head of the Nazi puppet regime at Vichy to warn of Jewish Masonic conspiracies. And in the 1950s, he served a couple of prison terms, totaling 18 months, for misappropriation of property and corrupting minors. After the longer of his prison terms, in 1956, again still much influenced by the writings of Lacour, he registered a new organization called the Priory of Sion, with statutes very similar to those of Alpha Galates. 
It was sometime after this that he and his friend, the artist Philippe de Cherisy, became enamored with the mystery of Berenger Saunière and Rennes-le-Château, visited the village, and eventually forged and planted false documents in the Bibliothèque Nationale intended to document and therefore legitimize Pierre Plantard's little right-wing society, the Priory of Sion, as well as his descent from the Merovingian kings and claim as the rightful ruler of France. All of which has been proven to be meticulously orchestrated hogwash. It appears to be nothing but an ironic twist that Henry Lincoln veered off the trail Plantard had prepared for him and asserted that Plantard was actually of the bloodline of Christ, suggesting this anti-Semite was actually a Jew. So the matter appeared to have been settled. It was all a hoax, perhaps the greatest modern hoax since Leo Taxil's publications about devil-worshipping Palladian Freemasons. Yet as we have seen before in the anti-Semitic myths of the blood libel and the protocols of Zion, as well as in such articles of religious faith as the Shroud of Turin, even when historical and scientific evidence demonstrate the falseness of something, that won't necessarily dissuade true believers. And just so, there remain today many treasure hunters skulking about Rennes-le-Château, as well as pseudo-historians who believe Christ himself might be buried somewhere near Berenger Saunier's church. And most still rely on Lincoln's geometry in Poussin's paintings and other clues originating from Plantard's forged documents, rationalizing that though he may have faked them all, perhaps he was an initiate with access to secret truth after all. But one can doubt or believe anything based on such logic. As Umberto Eco puts it in his novel Foucault's Pendulum, which many believe was inspired at least in part by Henry Lincoln's conspiracy-addled views of history, quote, the whole world is an enigma, a harmless enigma, that is made terrible by our own mad attempt to interpret it as though it had an underlying truth, end quote. Thank you for listening to Historical Blindness. Music for the show is provided by film composer Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com to get compositions for your own projects. And by Creepy Pizza and Sean Duncan from his former project Seanario, whose music can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Bandcamp. As always, a thanks goes out to my partner patrons on Patreon, Michael, Marina, Laurie, and Diane. You are the wind in my sails. Find me on Patreon to support the show and get some perks. Otherwise, visit the website to browse our merch on Redbubble, check out the episode reading list, and click through to Amazon to buy my novel about the intersection of anti-Masonry and the beginning of Mormonism in early 19th century New York. If you buy and read the novel, give me a review on Amazon. And if you're able to, rate and review the show on whatever app you use, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, as that can really increase discovery of the show. Until next time, remember, even when you're making wild and unsupported assertions or following a trail of obscure documents to shocking conclusions, you might just be a pawn 
in the master plan of a clever hoaxer. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.